0: Welcome to episode 99 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Lim.
1: And I'm Peter Olegi, And it is our pleasure to welcome Dr. Rosemary Moipopo to the podcast. Dr. Moipopo is a senior lecturer of anthropology at the University of Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. She specializes in social anthropology, and her research areas are on gender, human environment interactions, with a focus on coastal communities and artisanal and small-scale mining communities. She has published widely in these fields. She's the co-editor of Mining and Social Transformation in Africa, Mineralizing and Democratizing Trends in Artisanal Production, edited by Deborah Bryson, Eleanor Fisher, Jesper bossy johnson and Rosemary Waipobo, published by Routledge in 2014. She also published a study titled The Social Dimensions of Marine Protected Areas, as well as on gender in Tanzanian agriculture, health, and traditional birth and the gender gap in Tanzanian universities. She earned her PhD from the University of Cape Town in 2001, and she's currently a Fulbright Scholar in the United States. Welcome.
2: Thank you.
0: In your excellent chapter in a recent book that you co-edited with Deborah Bryson and others, you analyse grassroots people seeking to gain a living in artisanal mining in northwestern Tanzania. Uh, in the literature on artisanal miners in Africa, often the gender dimension and the role of women is neglected. Can you can you explain uh, uh, or elaborate this to the listeners, please?
2: Oh, thank you. Actually, women's uh, engagement in artisanal mining is hysterical, and um, they've actually been known to participate in so many aspects of the artisanal mining value chain. But I think it's the documentation of um, the artisanal mining industry that has been gendered, I should say, which hasn't uh, noted women's engagement in mining per se, but have been um, noting women as part of the servicing sector of the artisanal miners servicing, retailing, food, and other recreation. But they have been known, actually, to engage in um, the actual mining processes. So it's about the documentation. And uh, as we know, according to history, it has also been gendered, assuming that that kind of work is only for men.
0: And uh, the support uh, dimension is important here, I expect. When we're looking on the ground at this Mm -hmm. mine that you've worked on, Williamson, I think that's the largest in size kimberlite diamond mine in the world yeah. so the, the 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 movement of the women from the rural areas to the mind mm-hmm. and also their their sort of support work that must be important
2: it is indeed very important actually in all mining areas in tanzania if i may say much of the mining work has been supported by people who are actually called the category who are called service providers and several providers, for example, in uh, Madu, in the Madui mine, they're the ones who support the artisanal miners in terms of food, making the work, I mean, engaging the people there so that they, they have a way in which they would uh, go for small needs. It has been a very important part of the whole mining industry. But at the same time, women, women have not only been providing services like food and recreation, but also sponsoring Mining activities, so they would engage with people like pit owners, the miners, and give them some money to sponsor, let's say, to find uh, equipment, those kinds of things. So they have been a very, very important part of the whole mining industry for a very long time.
0: And what about the actual digging and the and the and the mine? Um. Do they get in there as well?
2: Well, now that's a different story, and it goes. Um, it's uh, related to history. Um, For the Tanzanian part, there have been a lot of uh, things to do with um, taboo and cultural aspects, uh, preventing women, prohibiting, I should say, women, particularly in long-base mining, and it was related to women having, associating women with bad luck. But with time, women have been changing those ideas, particularly in gold mining, where they can participate in shallow mining, shallow pit mining. So women have been digging by themselves as miners, but also women have been picking stones, gold-bearing stone, and um, processing it for gold. Uh, When it comes to long-base mining, when it's 70 metres deep or 70 feet deep, very few women had actually said that they go down, but it's always often with a male as a proxy particularly the husband and what. So they're changing, actually, the times. And these kinds of um, ideas about taboo, about customs, they're declining, although you could find them here and there. And women themselves being women, there are certain periods of the year, of the month, where going down a pit wouldn't be quite um, comfortable, so they don't. Taking a day off is okay. But they're trying to make sure that these um, ideas about prohibitions, which actually they thought were simply excluding them from the profit should change.
1: In uh, an article that you published uh, a few years ago titled The Ladder That Sends Us Wealth, you portrayed small-scale mining as a kind of uh, social entrepreneurial activity almost that you said can help alleviate poverty. Can you tell us how that can work?
2: Thank you. Actually, when we look at um, why women and men go into artisanal mining, in one way, it could be because of um, declining rural livelihoods and the poverty that actually the rural areas are being faced with. But in another way, it's about um, trying to look for a way where they can have a steady income and reliable income. There are a number of experiences where a few miners have actually been able to create wealth. And once you are lucky, the income that you gain has been noted to change one's life standards a lot. So when it comes to alleviating oneself out of poverty, there was a time when artisanal miners had been not probably well exposed to the ways in which they could invest the income they get from mining, into something beneficial. But now things are changing. So what artisanal miners are doing, many of them are using the income and they are investing it in other kinds of activities. Although it's a small percentage, but um, much of the urbanization, peri-urban trends you find around artisanal miners is supported by the income that comes from artisanal mining. So there's a lot of ways, if it's managed, encouraged, and people let's say, introduced to other ways of uh, reinvesting their wealth, they can actually change the standards of rural life and from the income that comes from mining. Because some of them, when they're lucky, they get quite a lot of money. And uh, areas like Gaeta, for example, even in Chunya down south, in the Lupa gold fields, much of the investments of the peri-urban communities have actually come from artisanal mining. So there is a way in which, uh, rather than looking at it simply as a poverty kind of response, but also people are now changing and looking at it as a wealth creation opportunity.
1: Yeah. And that's really interesting because the dominant image mm. of African artisanal small-scale minors, I think internationally, is that of a violent, greedy, individualistic group of males operating in conflict zones. I think of the movie Blood Diamond for instance. But your work in Tanzania in particular, as well as work in Ghana and so on, challenges this image. Uh, Would you agree or could you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Well, I think, um, fortunately, Tanzania has had a very different political history. In so many ways, the extent of violence that we see in uh, our neighbor, the DRC, or in other areas of um, West Africa, are very different. What I can say about artisanal mining is that it is uh, in some ways an uh, unregulated kind of income generating sector, economic sector, particularly because of um, people's demand for access to mineral rights. The history of artisanal mining in Tanzania what should I say, had not criminalized artisanal mining per se, but it had excluded artisanal mining for some time from the mainstream development of the mining sector. To the extent that uh, these small-scale producers didn't have organized, regulated ways of accessing mineral rights. So it was often a rush-and-take job. And that was probably the most unregulated aspect of it. When there were mineral rushes, Overnight, you'd find thousands of people in a particular mining spot. But with time, as policy came to recognize small-scale mining and the need to formalize and regulate the sector, they introduced a way in which um, small-scale miners should register for licenses and have primary mining licenses. So that kind of thing changed when policy recognition was for small-scale mining, but still, to date, uh, there hasn't been much that has been done to accommodate the population group that demands to seek a livelihood from artisanal mining. So we do experience mineral rushes, and these can be sometimes quite um, sensitive when it comes to the environment, particularly for land and water. But we don't experience that kind of violence in Tanzania, no. But the rush period there can be quite... Um, sort of um, engaging, and it can probably disturb the communities living around, but not violent. But another thing that I probably should admit is about the um, encroachment, being an unregulated kind of sector, and uh, often being in competition, particularly with large-scale miners, because sometimes some large-scale mines have been um, established in areas that had been worked by artisanal miners... So there's a lot of encroachment going on, and this has a lot of conflict. But now what the government is trying to do is looking at ways in which um, some form of, of an agreement of coexistence, where you have a large scale mining coexistent with small scale mining areas around it. And there's a program now called the multi sector, I think, investment program, which large scale mines and the government and small-scale mining organisations are trying to look for a ways in which they would um, regulate this uh, peaceful coexistence. I shouldn't say it's perfect, but at least some things are being done.
0: Mm. Mm. It's an important and uh, a fascinating aspect of your work also is the way you, you use oral interviews and you you speak to the different players in the community, the Mm. chiefs, the commoners, the ordinary people, the sponsors, and so on and so forth, Mm. the diggers. And I found it fascinating the way you got into the local vernacular, the local language, and you Mm. talk in the chapter about Ubeshi. Mm. Could you explain to the listeners what what Ubeshi is?
2: Thank you. Um, One thing that I want to say before I explain about Ubeshi is that um, one of the things that probably even the writing about artisanal miners had not been very interested in, was about um, telling a story from the miners' point of view, from a grassroots point of view. Why do they do this? How? What are the cultural contexts, social contexts? And why does this keep going on? And in that process, I came across Ubeshi. Ubeshi is a very common word used to refer to those people who encroach The Williamson Madui Diamonds for Diamond. But it comes from a local dialect that refers to the hawk. And they would refer to the hawk when it um, dives in for prey. It goes in very fastly, snatches its prey if it's a chicken, and then runs away. So that practice used to be the way in which they were beshi the people who are referred to Wabeshi would actually work, encroach into the mining lease, look for where the diamonds are, snatch, and quickly move out of the area. So to them, it's um, a metaphor of that practice of encroachment. And but this it, is
0: the Sukuma language?
2: Yeah, it is in Sukuma language, which is in north northwestern Tanzania, I should say.
0: And this is uh, what about hundred kilometers south of Lake Victoria, or um, the
2: Shinyanga area is uh, sort of, um, I should say, yeah, eighty kilometers—not very far from Mwanza, actually. Mwanza think. Along yeah, on yeah, the yeah, lake. Yeah, yes. yeah,
0: yeah. Well, uh, maybe we could um, uh, bring it all together by looking at the comparative dimensions across Africa briefly, uh, like you do in the book. Mm and uh, whilst you're a specialist on Tanzania, I was wondering if you had any observations on the variations in artisanal mining in different African countries. I'm reminded, in fact, that the gold mining industries and diamond mining industries in places such as California Mm -hmm. or Australia or even at Kimberley in South Africa in many ways began with individual diggers or artisanal miners. Mm -hmm. This was before the big monopoly capitalist mining companies moved in, but uh, that also speaks to the tendency of artisanal mining to be exhausted and replaced by these big companies. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm getting at is what is the long-term future of these women and men who fight for a better livelihood Mm -hmm. for their communities in the long run? Mm
2: -hmm. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, Tanzania's experience is uh, probably quite similar to other countries in Africa particularly Ghana, I think. We've done a lot of comparative work with Ghana, where they also have the Gallam, say, the artisanal miners who are also categorized as unlicensed illegal miners. But one thing that uh, probably African countries do agree is that um, there has been so much value on these people called the bush geologists who seek, explore, and um, sometimes may land on... um, quite a valuable mining area. One thing is that um, many countries in Africa are trying to change. There's actually what is called the African Mining Vision, trying to change the perception of artisanal and small-scale miners in Africa and see how they could uh, be regulated and formalized. One of the things that I find uh, probably quite challenging is the way in which um, even the African Mining Vision quite important as it is, and quite informed, talks of formalizing the artisanal and small-scale mining sector, which to me, I think, would only cater for a small percentage of the population that is actually engaging in um, small-scale mining industry. And the other thing is what you say about light-scale mining. Now, much of the economic development in Africa is tending towards large-scale investment in the mining. And that means bringing in private investment. And that means sharing, actually, the mineral resources between those whom the governments want to formalize and regulate in the industry, the local people, but also giving place to large-scale mining. Light scale mining in Tanzania, for example, is one of the biggest economic contributors to GDP. So how do they balance Allowing large-scale mining to prosper, but at the same time recognizing that they have a responsibility to accommodate the small-scale mining population that is actually growing a lot in number. So it's a challenge, and I think African governments would think. I believe um, things would change if governments realize that um, we have to now to make a way in which um, we agree this is about small-scale mining and this is about large-scale mining. I mean, their coexistence. And then the other thing is about recognizing the artisanal mining population. How do you allow them to be integrated in the whole mining industry without being um, categorized as unlicensed illegal miners? If there could be a way in which they would be recognized formally as part and parcel of the whole mining chain, artisanal mining chain, then probably they could also have a a way in which they would make claims to the mining industry. It's
1: a fascinating dimension of the mining industry Mm. on the African continent that we know very little about, Mm. uh, that you have shared with us and given us insights on the grassroots dimension and also the image and the perception of these uh, mining communities. Mm. Uh, And I really appreciate the comparative perspective that that you've brought. So uh, thank you very much for speaking with Africa Past and Present.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for giving me this opportunity.
1: Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Visual Humanities and Social Sciences and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information, and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.